Welcome to Food Focus, a weekly companion to the Retail Focus podcast. Each show will discuss news, issues, and product releases in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Here are your hosts, Trent Kling and Leighton Kling. Welcome to this week's Food Focus podcast. Later on, we'll have Tyson earnings and an SEC investigation there. A new flavor extension rolls out nearly nationwide for KFC. And we'll also talk about a well-established Canadian casual grill and bar making their first inroads in the United States. But first, the news on everyone's lips in the food news world over the last week. Chipotle released their most recent quarterly results. They showed some same-store sales increases, particularly for December, but there's still some lingering investor and market cynicism. Now, this most recent quarter was their quarter ending December 1st. It would have been fiscal year 2017. 16 fourth quarter still posted a positive earnings per share in fact 55 cents per share now this did fall slightly short of analyst estimates of 57 cents a share according to thomson reuters but they did show revenue that was in line with expectations of 1.03 billion which is an increase of 3.7 percent year over year due almost entirely to location growth Yeah, that's right. And if you look at that 3.7% year-over-year revenue boost, it is primarily from over 200 locations they opened in fiscal 2016. And if you look at just this quarter, this fourth quarter ending December 31st, you're seeing that they opened actually over 70 locations then too. So they're still going on a solid growth plan as far as expanding the amount of total locations they have. So despite some slower traffic, some lower traffic numbers overall, you're still seeing that they are bullish themselves. And one, to expand their footprint throughout the United States. Same restaurant sales were down 4.8%. And this is versus the same quarter last year. And honestly, this is a number that analysts were really looking at and hoping for a higher number because the November the November and December same store sales came in at a positive figure and December saw a positive 14% increase in same store sales versus the same month last year. So this indicates they are acquiring momentum since the quarter ended in December. It looks as though they've rebounded and have started to gain some momentum as of late. Average checks started to rebound also in December, coming up by about 2% versus last year. They expect same store sales to be positive throughout fiscal 2017, which which is a really good sign for the company. They said that January sales look to be strong. And when they're looking at negative 26% for same-store sales for February and March of last year, you have to see that they're up against some favorable comps. So this will actually be the first quarter. This first quarter, 2017, is going to be the first quarter where they're really looking ahead, trying to go past the E. coli outbreak of last year, where the CDC actually declared the E. coli outbreak officially over on February 1st. Therefore, this will be the first full quarter that we're seeing comparable sales for the majority of the E. coli outbreak done and over with. They opened, again, 72 new locations for the quarter. And so there's a lot of really good news from this quarter if you look throughout the earnings call. But despite a lot of good points in this earnings call, the stock price was trading down about 3 to 5% in the after hours trading. I think part of the reason the share price went down was because the market kind of balked at some of these cost inputs that Chipotle published. One of the main concerns was the fact that labor costs increased by 140 basis points versus last year. 
But again, when you look at their labor costs and their percentage of overall revenue going towards labor, which for this quarter was 27.5%, that is in line with many other restaurant chains. It's just not what Chipotle is used to getting. And part of the reason that is is because you saw that decrease in traffic overall, particularly in October. So anytime you see a decrease in traffic, anytime you see a decrease in total sales, labor costs are going to remain relatively steady. And that's something that Chipotle has gone on record saying is that they wanted to continue to staff their stores at appropriate levels despite a sales downturn. And they continued the process of having their annual hiring day during last fall. They're looking at wage increases looking ahead as well of 4 to 5 percent in 2017, but they'll also be saving on some salaried positions due to increased efficiencies, they say, in market leadership. But this is what I really wanted to focus on. Oftentimes when restaurants cite high input food prices, we are the first to be cynical about it and call restaurants out on maybe using some excuses for their reduced margins. But they cited high prices with pre-chopped tomatoes and also avocados. And the nice thing about avocados is the Haas Avocado Board does keep very close track of the average price of an avocado. And if you just look at December, there are some favorable numbers here. You're looking at an average price of $1 for the traditionally raised avocado. And then even for organic avocados, you see prices beginning to drop from $1.56 at the beginning of December to $1.34 at the end of December. But what I want to do is compare this quarter's avocado costs to last year's fourth quarter avocado costs. And when we go back to November in particular and October of this year, you're seeing an average traditionally raised avocado cost hovering around $1.44 to $1.27 to $1.23 at the beginning of October. Let's go now to last year's fourth quarter where they ended the year at about $0.95 cents per pound, not too far away from where they're at currently. But you look at the first few months of the quarter. At the beginning of October of 2005, the average cost for a conventionally raised avocado was one one dollar and two cents nearly 20 cents cheaper than it was in 2016 and then we look at november and you were seeing prices per avocado of 97 cents 92 cents on the 15th of november and 96 cents on november 22nd now let's fast forward to november 2016 and you're going to see some astounding comparisons you're looking at a dollar 44 per avocado a dollar 36 per avocado midway through November. So these are very real increases. You're talking about increases of 30 to 40% in most of these cases. Now the positives for Chipotle, and you might be asking, well, if avocado prices are trending upward because volume and demand are trending upward, isn't that bad long-term for Chipotle? However, the good news for Chipotle is by the time this calendar year ended, by the time 2016 ended, the average price of an avocado was within three cents, within three percent of what it was in 2015. And so far in January, that trend has continued. So I think you're going to start to see some favorable comps as far as cost inputs. This is going to mean increased margins for Chipotle going forward. And there was a lot of press about how margins were shrinking for Chipotle, not only about labor costs, but about the input costs of food. Chipotle also mentioned that they had some pricing relief when it came to beef products 
products, and they expect that to continue during the first part of 2017 as well. So overall, for this next quarter, there are reasons to be bullish about Chipotle, even if the rest of the market doesn't necessarily see them, and even if the rest of the market got spooked by this earnings release, because not only do you see the potential for double-digit same-store sales gains over this next year, but Chipotle continues to open outlets, and they're about to get some pricing relief on some of these products like tomatoes, like avocados, where prices are going back in line with historical norms at the beginning of 2017. You mentioned beef products, and that's something we're going to talk about in regards to Tyson's first quarter earnings. And they're seeing prices falling consistently, and that's reflective in this previous earnings quarter. I wanted to shift a little bit and really look at the operations overall. And by doing this, we're going to be looking at the marketing effectiveness and how they're going to be focused on throughput levels, not only with their in-store operations, but also with their digital sales platform that they've had for quite some time and is quite robust, but they've implemented a new system that looks to replace their old legacy system. And this is actually going to be done by the end of this week. So let's start with the marketing creativeness. If we talk about the marketing, Steve Ells mentioned several times that they are looking to have a more creative marketing team, but then also focusing more on the conventional techniques as well. So with those conventional techniques, we're talking about more television advertising, things that have been talked about over the last few months. I think this really has something to do with what activist investors have been saying for some time and that Chipotle needs to branch out and potentially have some conventional ways about not just marketing, but potentially other parts of their operations. Despite some throughput headwinds and some previous comments by Steve Ells earlier in the previous year saying that their stores aren't up to expectations, up to where they should be as far as providing excellent customer service, they are said to be improving. They're looking at more ways to improve throughput, and they're doing this by simplifying these different aspects. And they said that they've really conveyed some of the better practices to their in-store management and to the field managers. And they said with the digital sales platform, this is something again, that has been fairly robust in the past, they've cut wait times by nearly half for online orders. They call this new platform smarter pickup times versus the old legacy system. And they're increasing payroll by $2 million to accommodate these digital orders. So there'll no longer be a backlog of customers that are waiting to pick up their online orders. So they're really making strides in this platform. And they're talking about rolling out these mobile payments for catering as well. Something that they've really been focused on in 2016 is their catering business. They did a lot of marketing around the Super Bowl trying to get people to utilize their catering platform. And overall, just this sense that Steve Ells is focused on exceptional guest service. He must have mentioned this about a dozen times during their earnings call. They said they have to focus on the customer, and that is their number one goal for 2017. And you really see this in that they're going to be tying a lot of incentives with in-store management to how each store is performing this new compensation system is going to be tied to customer service surveys that managers can look at at the store level. And I think it's going to be at a market level too. They said field managers will also be held accountable for customer service level. So again, putting forth a lot of money into the customer service aspect of Chipotle. But me personally going to a Chipotle, I really haven't experienced too many problems with the throughput in my market at least. But I understand that other markets may be a little hamstrung. Maybe they've cut back on a little bit of labor costs because of the lower traffic in their stores. And this is in regards to the 2015 and 2016 sales from the E. coli outbreak. 
Yeah, I still think that in many cases they haven't cut back staffing levels as you would see from perhaps a more traditionally run restaurant company. When you look at their share price, it's been bouncing around really $400 per share, but with a price-to-earnings ratio that would suggest future growth on behalf of shareholders. Their price-to-earnings ratio is 161, which is far past the threshold of growth we typically regard as you know 10 to 15 in terms of price-to-earnings ratio. So a lot of people on the market still see growth potential for Chipotle. And I think you and I agree that we're going to see some higher top line revenue numbers, but also increased same store sales. And I think when you start to see them succeed on multiple different metrics and start to increase their margins once again, you'll see Chipotle maybe not return to the darling of the restaurant world status that they had prior to this E. coli outbreak, but at least return to some sort of a normalized level where they've reached full maturity. We move on to our second story. Tyson Foods posts a beat on both top and bottom line numbers, but news of the SEC investigation hampered their stock price despite looking good in after-hours trading. They did report very good numbers. They reported their first quarter earnings per share of $1.59 on revenues of $9.18 billion. This was, again, a beat on both profit and revenue. Analysts were expecting $1.26 on profit and then $9.05 billion in revenue, so beating those numbers by a high margin. Net income rose from $461 million same quarter last year to $594 million this year. And the same period ago, earnings per share was $1.15 per share on revenues of $9.15 billion. So you can see that they're growing on revenue, but they're actually more profitable and having a higher operating margin based on continuing operations. So a lot of really positive signs for the company. Again, they are reporting increased margin margins from operating income as operating income increased from $776 million last year to $982 million this year. The company's total operating margin for the quarter rose from 8.5% a year ago to a whopping 10.7%. A lot of analysts were saying this beat company expectations as well. And they are finding a lot of synergies and efficiencies as within all segments of their company. They operate four segments, have been finding a lot of economies of scale, and have really been honing down their operations despite pricing going down for the majority of their products. Average prices for their foods fell a whopping 2%, seeing a 6.6% drop in beef prices. And that point is relevant because roughly 40% of their overall business is from the beef segment. They operate with beef, pork, chicken, and prepared foods. Those are the four segments that Tyson operates. And you're also saying that the other fresh meats divisions are looking strong overall. Yeah, now that we've talked about the numbers, let's talk about this from the food perspective. And a lot of people may not know if they're not associated with Tyson that they do have a very well-rounded business. You mentioned beef, pork, chicken, and prepared foods. Because they operate in four segments, when you have a pricing decrease in one, as we saw during this last quarter in the beef area, you can hope that one of these other segments will see increased prices or maybe help to lift those slumping prices a little bit. And that's exactly what we saw out of their pork division. Their pork sales were up to a record for the company. It came in at $247 million for the quarter. Not only was the volume up, 
But the margin was also strong at 19.7%, despite the fact that prices were down slightly by about 1%. And again, this dovetails nicely with what we've been talking about for a while now with food deflation. We're starting to see it in providers' earnings like Tyson, for example. Chicken sales, likewise, they came in at $263 million. Now, chicken sales, this might be what Tyson is most well-known for, but they don't necessarily get the most money out of chicken. They're operating margin just came in at 9.7% from that. And Tyson actually makes less in terms of top line revenue from chicken than they do from beef. But I want to look at prepared foods. And I think this is where part of the future is going to be for Tyson. The operating income from prepared foods in the first quarter of this fiscal year, $190 million. They saw an operating margin of 10%. That's all despite the fact that the average price was down 2.9%. However, volume did increase in this area 2.9% to perfectly offset the average price decline. I think when you look at Tyson and their prepackaged food division, keep in mind they've got business entities such as Hillshire Farms that are seeing increased success. And they mentioned this on-the-go optionality is what they call it, but these e-commerce meal kits, basically, and the fact that they see strengths in the direct-to-consumer areas of their business and the food service side as well of their prepared foods business. And I think this is something you're going to see Tyson begin to build out increasingly as we talk about customers continually looking towards convenience in the grocery store aisles, but also towards convenience in that they want to order something online and have it arrive at their door. And that's something that Tyson feels as though they can build out. However, all that being said, we still haven't talked about the elephant in the room, which is a subpoena from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. There's a lot going on here as far as regulatory filings are concerned. Yeah, the subpoena is dated January 20th, and Tyson Foods acknowledged this on Monday that it had received a subpoena from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commissions following allegations it conspired with rivals to fix the price of chicken. So as we can see here, there is pricing pressure that is downward for chicken in the U.S. economy, and this is something that they've really been looking to combat in the recent years. Chicken producers have had a really good time, a really good run of production. There hasn't been any huge waves of illness or anything that have affected poultry sales or poultry production overall. But U.S. poultry buyers claimed in a lawsuit in 2016 that Tyson, which is actually the nation's largest chicken processor and its competitors colluded for pricing since 2008 to reduce output and manipulate prices. So this is economics 101. If you try to manipulate output, you're going to have a bit of a difference in prices. They wanted to keep prices high. Therefore, they have to sustain and suppress a little bit of supply. So this is really bringing back some similarities between the case we were talking about a few podcasts ago with milk producers in the Midwest for allegedly killing cows before they were past production maturity. So this is something that Tyson said they are going to be looking at, but they can't make any statements directly tied with this new SEC investigation. This involves Tyson, Pilgrim's Pride Corporation, and Sanderson Farms, who have all denied the accusations so far. And there was some market volatility in regards to Tyson shares on the market because even though they had a pretty solid earnings release, I think a lot of people were curious about the SEC probe, and this is something we'll have to keep a close eye on going forward. 
Well, speaking of a company that purveys largely in chicken, KFC launched a nationwide release of their latest flavor extension, Georgia Gold. Now, it's not a complete nationwide release. It is in participating markets, but this is a larger release of Georgia Gold than we've seen at any moment in the past. The release or the eventual release of Georgia Gold was referenced in their last investor conference taking place back in October. By their last investor conference, I mean Yum Brands's last investor conference. And it's interesting because KFC is seeing growth in flavor extensions. This shouldn't catch anyone by surprise. If you've paid any attention to the likes of Wingstop and Buffalo Wild Wings, you know that they are growing out the number of of flavors that they have available to consumers and it seems like with those businesses the more the merrier we're also seeing some sauce extensions and that type of thing with other chicken qsrs the likes of zaxby's and raising canes for example but with kfc they've tried not only the nashville hot chicken as they rolled out earlier last year but also in international markets they've seen big success with some of their flavor extensions including lemon pepper chicken strips and cola barbecue wicked wings which are also things they referenced during this last investors call but they did make note that they were planning on rolling out this georgia gold honey mustard barbecue brand extension coming in this year and it is a much larger rollout than just their test rollout their advertising began to roll out nationwide on january 29th Basically, the flavor is based on kind of mustard-based barbecue. You find a lot of this in the Carolinas primarily, so I found it interesting that they're using Georgia, I would guess, for the alliteration in the name. But you'll see oftentimes mustard-based barbecue sauce, sometimes vinegar-based barbecue sauce, and they're using that sauce as a basis for a number of different products. And I think probably the most effective thing here for KFC, much like their Nashville Hot Chicken Extension, they're able to use this Georgia gold sauce in a number of different ways. They're not confining it to just strips or just to wings. Yeah, and they've promoted it quite well. You can see that via the commercials that started airing on January 29th, exactly one day before the promotion was officially rolled out in certain locations throughout the United States. But in a statement by Kevin Hawkman, the KFC's U.S. Chief Marketing Officer, he said, our KFC Georgia Gold is like no other chicken you've ever eaten. He said at the price point of $5.49, it's a lot cheaper than real gold and a lot tastier. So you can see that he's actually playing a part in the overall marketing campaign that really looks to amplify this overall advertising campaign. This aligned advertising campaign, they have actually brought in a new colonel as well, actor and producer Billy Zane. He's participated in a number of commercials, not only ones that are airing on TV, but then also ones that are directly linked to their social media account. So like with other limited time offerings of KFC and Taco Bell in the recent months and recent year, you've really seen a high utilization of social media to get their message out. And in another statement, a statement that was actually made at a different day, Kevin Hawkman said that this is actually going to be just a 12-week promotional window lasting until April. And our first goal is creating awareness so that this recipe and communicating what it tastes like is the most important thing. And so I feel as though having this gold kernel in there really speaks to the idea that this is going to taste much more different than anything they've had in the past, whether it be a limited time offering or something conventional they've produced through these KFC stores. But I think this is a really good way of convincing conveying their message, trying to get customers in to these stores. You've seen this really relay to the sales of 
KFC in the recent years has been the banner outlet for Yum Brands. Yum Brands overall has been struggling to keep up market share, particularly in the pizza industry where you saw Pizza Hut was down 1% due to these high competition levels with the likes of Domino's and Papa John's. But you see Taco Bell sales aren't as strong as the same store sales of KFC as well. So these limited time offerings really are KFC's bread and butter. And I'm curious to see how this 12-week rollout of this new Georgia Gold Honey Mustard Barbecue Chicken will do. And even though they mention it's a limited time offer and they're seeking a 12-week rollout of this, astute customers will also know that they've re-rolled out their Nashville hot flavors. And in fact, you can get big baskets of both Georgia Gold and Nashville hot chicken for $9.99. And those include six extra crispy tenders or four pieces of extra crispy chicken, as well as coleslaw, mashed potatoes, and gravy and two biscuits so they're bringing back the nashville hot flavor that was supposedly an lto last year and one of the more impressive things as i mentioned earlier as far as kfc is concerned is they're not confining it to just one product as they've done in the past with say wing flavors instead what they're doing is making everything available with this sauce on it so extra crispy chicken extra crispy tenders chicken littles as well and then participating kfcs will also offer georgia gold kentucky grilled chicken rather than only offering it in the fried or crispy chicken versions as well as georgia gold hot wings so you have up to five different products available in some markets with this sauce on it and Leighton you mentioned how KFC has really kind of been the banner brand for Yum Brands not only in the United States but also internationally where they're seeing massive growth by leaps and bounds in China and they're actually the main driver as well for Yum China. KFC over the future few decades they see three times unit growth potential. They want to grow from 20,000 outlets internationally, which they're at right now, to 60,000 outlets internationally. And that would put them by far and away the largest brand at Yum Brands. For comparison, Taco Bell has only about 6,000 outlets internationally. KFC, at least as far as the new Yum is concerned, so that would be Yum Brands minus China. KFC accounts for 48% of Yum's total operating profit, which is remarkable. Part of the reason they are a leader for Yum Brands is, as Leighton said, their limited time offers have been well received. They are hitting the marketing hard, and the Multiple Kernels campaign has worked probably far better than I think anyone could have anticipated. This has been an ad campaign that's been around now for three years, and it seems to work by keeping the image of the kernel fresh and now you have the gold kernel that'll be around presumably for the next 12 weeks as they attempt to market this Georgia gold offering. You mentioned that KFC currently has over 20,000 restaurants worldwide. This is in 125 different countries. So to put this in perspective, just in the United States, they have 4,232 restaurants. This was actually just updated by their own Yum! Brands website. But overall, you're seeing that the growth is more international. But you see the KFC banner really being strong over the recent years. And you see how Yum! Brands has actually divested the Pizza Hut operations in China. But you see these KFC operations really doing well, not just in the U.S., but overseas as well. For our final story, we turn to that aforementioned Canadian staple grill and bar that's beginning to head south, and they're doing so through an interesting entry point. 
That's Texas. We're talking about Moxie's Grill and Bar. They are a Canadian staple. They have 65 locations in eight provinces in Canada. And just this last November, they opened a single location in the north downtown Dallas area. And ordinarily, there are so many restaurants in the United States that on the Food Focus, we wouldn't talk about just a single location opening. But the story here is really an expansion story as Moxie seeks to expand to other locations in Texas first. And then they'll look nationwide as they look to expand their overall reach. Now, as we said They are a Canadian staple. And as we begin talking about Moxie's, I want to give a little bit of historical perspective to those, especially listening in the United States or the southern United States, to note some other Canadian staples that have established some crossover appeal with Americans. First, I want to look at Boston Pizza, or Boston Pizza as it's known in Canada. Here, domestically in the United States, it's known as Boston's. This began in Edmonton in 1964. One of the first franchisees was Jim Tree Living. And the funny story is Tree Living is the father of current Calgary Flames GM, Brad Tree Living. We'll talk about the NHL connection a little bit later on, but Jim Tree Living ended up buying the chain outright with a partner, George Melville, in 1983, and then they expanded south of the border. They actually established headquarters south of the border in the very same Dallas-Fort Worth area that Moxie's is beginning to expand into. Currently, they have 28 locations throughout the U.S., many of them located in the northern U.S., but they do have those three locations around their headquarters in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Next, we have Tim Hortons, and a lot of longtime listeners to the podcast or a lot of people that know the food industry likely familiar with Tim Hortons because now they're part of Restaurant Brands International following Burger King's buyout of them in 2014. The first store was opened in Hamilton, Ontario in 1964, and if you're not a hockey fan, you might not know this, but they were started up by longtime Maple Leafs defenseman Tim Horton, who went on to play for a few other teams. In fact, the Buffalo Sabres was one such team and that's the first location that Tim Hortons moved across the border when Tim Horton began to play in Buffalo. Later he died in a car wreck that's still kind of shrouded in mystery. That happened in 1974. So they kind of bounced back and forth between owners after that point. There was a merger with Wendy's in the early 90s and that brought a number of Tim Hortons locations into Ohio. They were eventually repatriated and then of course now Burger King bought them to form Restaurant Brands International and now you're seeing more and more Tim Hortons locations open in the U.S., stretching as far south as St. Louis. And then one other restaurant that I want to look at is The Keg. And this was started in the Vancouver metro area in the early 1970s. Upscale fare. Oftentimes what they do in Canada is they will buy up older properties or older mansions or manors and then they'll turn them into restaurants. Gradually expanded into the U.S., although currently they only have 10 locations. But when you look at where the locations are, Washington State, of course, makes sense right across the border from Vancouver. But Arizona, Colorado and Texas are the other locations. Now, keep that in mind as two of these three have holdings in Texas. Now, as far as Moxie's is concerned, they exist in a very similar market segment as the keg in this premium casual segment. 
Yeah, that's right. They do. And they even talk about their premium dining atmosphere. And so this is something they really take pride in. They want you to feel like you're in an upscale restaurant. And in the Dallas location, it's interesting because they actually have the same amount of seating on the outside of the location as they do on the inside. And so they have actually multiple bars and seating areas spread throughout. Really done in a stylish and elegant way. And if you look on their website and really look at what the company is about, Thomas Keller has a quote a recipe has no soul. You as the cook must bring soul to the recipe. So this isn't only premium food that they're selling, but they really take pride in their individual recipes. And so while you look at their menu and you're seeing some things that you would see at, say, a Cheddar's, which actually tries to appeal to the price-conscious consumer while serving some of the common mainstays that you would see at an American diner. You look at these price points, this really is important to note. These are higher price points. The USDA prime rib New York steak, for instance, is $41. The prime ribeye is $44. The tenderloin filet is $33. But these are really good products, products that they've taken a lot of care into as far as designing the recipe and training these cooks at these individual restaurants. The other thing I wanted to mention is that their sourcing of ingredients is noted on their website as well. Ingredients are always freshly sourced, their quality ingredients, and the eggs they use are always 100% cage-free. And so I think this really speaks to Moxie's model, and I think it's going to take off in an area such as Dallas and the upscale part of Dallas called the Crescent. And it opened on November 19th, and you see a lot of millennial crowds flocking to this type of restaurant. You see that they serve cocktails, they have afternoon brunch, things of this nature that really appeals to these crowds, these crowds that really aren't too price-conscious consumers. And I think this is going to be good for the area. And it looks as though Moxie's is actually looking to expand beyond the Dallas area, beyond this area in the Crescent. That's correct. And in fact, later on this year, or perhaps next year, Moxie's will open up their second U.S. location. And the location will actually be inside a sister enterprise in terms of a hotel because they are owned moxie's is by northland properties corporation and northland is building a hotel in plano currently and in that hotel they will have a moxie's inside so there's at least one other location in the works there's another hotel being planned for cedar park which is in the austin metro area and there's talk of potentially bringing a moxie's to houston so you're looking at expansion to maybe four or five locations over the next couple of years i think one of the more interesting aspects of this i want to go back to those nhl or national hockey league tie-ins because moxie's as we've mentioned is a subsidiary of northland properties corporation whose majority owner is actually tom giglardi now he is the majority owner of the Dallas Stars, actually bought into the Stars five years ago. And at that time, he and the rest of the ownership group in Northland Properties kind of had this idea where it would give him the opportunity to do due diligence in the Dallas market. So he hung out in Dallas for four years, eventually planned this particular location in the Crescent. And in an interview recently, he said that and I quote, it was a thought we had at the very beginning. I'd be spending large amounts of time in Dallas and I'd be able to become very familiar with the marketplace and understand the differences basically between Canada and Dallas. And so he noted that Dallas was very ripe towards this type of thing. When you go to Dallas, and, and I don't live there, but it's a city that I do visit with a little bit of frequency due to work and some other things. 
I have the opportunity to go to some of these what he calls premium casual restaurants, and they're very popular in Dallas because the millennial crowd in Dallas has a little bit more discretionary money to spend. Housing costs are not in Dallas what they are in many other major cities throughout the U.S., the likes of, say, Los Angeles or the Bay Area in California or New York, even on the East Coast. Housing costs in Dallas are much cheaper, so urban millennials have a little bit more discretionary money to spend, and Dallas is very popular for a lot of these type of restaurants, and it's one of the reasons why you see some of these other places, like the Keg, for example, opening up in Texas. Now, what Gaglardi was able to do as well was fold in promotion using the Dallas Stars, the hockey team there in Dallas, and many of the players, in particular their center Tyler Sagan and their captain Jamie Benn, are as popular in Dallas as you know the likes of Tony Romo and Dak Prescott. They're on billboards. They're very, very visible in the community. And so when those players began to frequent Moxie's and talk about how great Moxie's was because it was like a taste of Canada, it was like a taste of home to them, that also drove their customer base after their original opening on November 19th. And so that helped to bolster their early sales. And it may be one of the reasons why Further U.S. expansion for Moxie is in the cards. An interesting note is that there are other restaurants named Moxie's in the U.S., most notably ones in Tampa and Washington, D.C. And sometimes when Canadian companies come south of the border or American companies go north of the border, as we saw with Boston Market, actually, several years ago, you run into some copyright discrepancies. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. But Moxie seems like they're looking to expand even further, not only in Texas, but they've got their eyes on other areas in the U.S. as well. Yeah, that's right. And it is interesting how they're able to really bring in the synergies from a professional sports team such as the Dallas Stars through that majority owner. They actually sponsor the Dallas Stars' 50-50 raffle, and then they also give season ticket holders 10% off each visit. So really finding these synergies and bringing this atmosphere that a lot of people aren't that aware of to the Stars fans. And I think this is a really good way to increase sales in the short amount of time they've been existent. And then just as a last note, if you're looking at their United States menus, as I had alluded to earlier, in comparison to Canada's, they are a little more unique. They have a little bit more unique offerings on the U.S. version. Although Canadian menus are a bit different in the individual locations up there, they are really trying to tie in to the likes and needs of the consumers in this Dallas metro market. But as you had mentioned, this is a really good time for the owner to survey the area, having been here for several years and really getting to know what consumers want and if there's an opportunity to have something that they currently do not, especially in the Crescent area. Well, we reached the point where we wrap up the Food Focus podcast, but before we do, as is tradition, both Leighton and I will talk about one new food product that we tried in the last week, and ideally the product new to the world of food as well, and we begin with Leighton. Yeah, so I tried an item that isn't actually a whole food item, but it is something that I use every day now to prepare my foods. I have a habit of making eggs in the morning, and with that, I typically use a vegetable oil or some sort of olive oil to cook them on. I I hate the eggs actually sticking to the pan, but I ended up switching to something after listening to another podcast talking about the health benefits of coconut oil. And so I actually went on and did a little price comparison I found a coconut oil that was actually sold at walmart.com. It's 
the brand Coconut Secret, and it's raw extra virgin coconut oil. And if you look at the nutrition facts, they're actually quite similar to a vegetable oil or an olive oil. So they have a high fat content. You're looking at 14 grams of fat for one tablespoon of oil. But I found as though this oil really cooks well in the pan. It's easy to melt, and it really has a lot of positive properties. And then also, you're seeing that a lot of health experts are saying that it has really good health effects. So you're talking about good saturated fats, not bad saturated fats, and it doesn't have any cholesterol either. So if you're really worried about looking at those types of things from your doctor or what have you, this is something that is a good alternative that has actually been around for quite some time. You're looking at a price point of about $12.50 for a 16-ounce jar of coconut oil. I think that's a fairly good deal. Again, I did a little price comparison, and this was in the price point that was most competitive, and I feel as though this is going to be a staple product of mine for years to come. I'm sad to say that I'm no longer in the vegetable oil business. I tried a product that is not necessarily new altogether to the North American market, but they do have some new distribution deals, which causes the food in question to actually be more readily available than they used to be. And I'm talking about Harvest Snaps. These are something distributed by Calbee, who is a longtime snack food maker. They're very popular products overseas, especially in Asia. But these are actually Snap Pea Crisps. And when I bought them initially, I figured as though they were just basically snap peas that had been roasted. And I don't think that's the case. After having tried them, it actually tastes a lot more like perhaps they're using pea flour as a base for essentially a baked crisp. And I had the Caesar flavor of these. The MSRP, or at least the retail price I got them at, was $1.59 for a 3.3-ounce package. In this 3.3-ounce package, there is about three serving sizes. And per serving, it's 5 grams of fat, 120 calories. But there were 3 grams of fiber and also 5 grams of protein. And in this circumstance, the Caesar crisps really did live up to at least the flavor there. Although I must say they were a little on the salty side. And despite the fact that they were baked and they are marketed as a better for you snack, I did find them just a little bit, not necessarily greasy, but just a little bit heavy as far as a snack is concerned. And also it was very difficult to stay just with the serving size of them. Not a bad product and a product I'll probably end up buying in the future as an alternative to potato chips, but they are gluten-free and now they're available at many 7-Elevens throughout the country. And in fact, they have brand extensions that include lentil bean flavors and also black bean flavors as well. Harvest Snaps, Snap Pea Crisp. They have a multitude of different flavors in their original version. Well, that's it for this week's Food Focus podcast. For more on the world of food, check us out on Twitter at The Food Focus, where we'll be tweeting out and retweeting a lot of the week's best food stories, the food stories we find most intriguing. And when we come back with Retail Focus at the end of this week, we'll be talking about Gap's earnings surprise and how it may be a sign that mall retail isn't dying after all. For Leighton, I'm Trent, and we'll be back with another Food Focus early next week. This has been the Food Focus Podcast. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. For more information or for past podcast episodes, visit us online at retailfocuspodcast.com. 
Also, follow us on Twitter at The Food Focus for news in the restaurant, fast food, beverage, and grocery industries. Thank you.